As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. This is your quarter final preview. My name is Jack Collins and I'll be your host today as we work our way through all four of the World Cup quarterfinals that take place on Friday and Saturday this week. I'm going to be joined across the course of this episode by four very special guests, each looking at one of these games. First up, we're going to be talking Croatia-Brazil with John McKenzie of TIFO Football. Then, of course, Argentina-Netherlands with the Athletics' Jay Harris. From that parish as well, Peter Rutz will be after that talking about Morocco-Portugal and we'll finish by circling back to TIFO as West Seb Stafford Law will be joining me to talk about France, England. Very exciting four tyres. I'm really looking forward to this. So let's get into it and let's start with Croatia, Brazil. So into part one, into the first of these quarterfinals, Croatia against Brazil. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by TIFO Football's John McKenzie. John, welcome back to the Athletic Soccer Show. Oh, thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. We've been comparing our fatigue levels, but yeah, we are, we're well and truly into this World Cup now, right? Well, this is it. There's actually only eight games left, which seems a bit mad because it's about the same time left as the, the time we've already done. It feels like we're about halfway in the actual like sort of scale of where we've come from. But equally, we're about, well, I would say what, eight tenths of the way, four fifths of the way through the games, which is which is pretty nuts at this point. So uh, I'm looking forward to letting this kind of stretch out now and, and enjoy these games for what they're worth and seeing some of the big guns come up against each other, which has been a rarity, I'd say, so far in this tournament. But Croatia versus Brazil is our first quarterfinal. And perhaps, John, maybe the most one-sided of all of them on paper, um, which is not what I necessarily would have said coming into this, but the way that Morocco performed through this tournament has been admirable. I've really enjoyed their games. I think got a real chance against Portugal. This is the only game where I really can't see a shot for one of the two sides. Are you going to prove me wrong? Well, we thought that maybe about Morocco and Spain, but obviously that didn't play out the way that was expected. But I think you are right. This is a game where it's 
very hard to see Croatia coming through as the victors. Brazil have been absolutely sparkling, I think, in this tournament so far. It's been wonderful to watch them play. Um, and they have just brilliant players in every position. They have a really good tactical approach as well. Whereas Croatia, you also get the feeling that they're just a sort of solid side who rely heavily on that, that midfield trio of Modric, Brozovic and uh, Kovacic as well. Um, just problem solving in the moment. It doesn't ever really feel like they have an overall tactical plan, uh, but because they have those three players in in harmony, they can they can cause things to happen. And I think it was in the last uh, World Cup where they, they were getting through a lot on extra time and penalties too, and we've already seen them do that. So that's probably their best hope, I would think, in, in this sort of game. Yeah, it does feel like Croatia have built to go the distance, right? They've they've come from behind, I think, in in a lot of these games as well over the last two World Cups. They've they have no qualms about coming coming from behind. But I think it's interesting to to kind of watch them and and see where the the question marks lie because uh, you know we, we've seen Brazil and, and we'll come on to them because Brazil are joyful and they'll be more fun to talk about. But I think it's worth starting with Croatia because this number nine position was a question mark before the tournament began, and we have had absolutely zero answers to who's going to play in that position and who's kind of made the spot their own and lots of nations have differing strikers and, and different kind of options as to who's going to stay there but I don't think I've seen anyone change quite as much um, as Croatia who have played Marko Levaya at times they brought on Ante Budimir at times uh, we saw Pekovic start there at times as well it really hasn't been particularly cohesive and in the last game we saw all three of them which is probably the the most worrying sign yet uh, and obviously Kramaric has kind of nailed down the spot on the right hand side of this attacking trident which is interesting but he seems to be doing a relatively okay job there so that's fine but the problem they have with finding someone who's going to make things stick in the middle and, and bring players other players into play and get the midfield up the pitch uh, has been a issue for Croatia. Yeah, it's been very much a World Cup of like number nine narratives as well, right? So I, I think it's clear to say that that actually playing an out and out striker in in the classic mold is is the most suitable way of playing in these sorts of tournaments because you do need to have someone who is going to be there to to try and poach those goals in the moments where you generate them. And it, this sort of knockout tournament is about just getting every advantage you can. And I think yeah. you, you know we've we've seen the way that that Spain have played with. Well, I use the word false nine maybe advisedly, but there's a lot of people saying, you know, if they if, if you have a striker who is there, who can cause problems for defenders in the box late on in games where you're not having any joy, you can you can get something out of it. But I don't think that that's necessarily been the case for, for Croatia because they, as you said, they've tried they've tried everything. And um, Kramaric, I think, has, as you as you said, he could play could be played as a nine, but has really made that wide um, role his own and uh, has been a joy to watch actually it's, he's a very sort of purple patch player I think um, Cramrich yes. so sometimes he just looks absolutely unbeatable and I think in, in this tournament he's looked great in that slot so you probably wouldn't want to want to shift him so yeah it looks like Petkovic big stage for him to to come on to and, and make a, a big difference so um, I'm not holding out a huge uh, amount of hope that he's going to do a Gonzalo Ramos and, 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 and really you know explode onto the onto the stage when he comes up against Brazil yeah, um, he's he's a funny player, obviously. But you look at this team, and and I suppose one of the big stories has been Josep Gvardiol, who has had an exceptional tournament pretty much from the get-go. Uh, he's been one of the linchpins of this side. Um, and and when you look at this Croatia side, you, you think, right, how, how are you going to get through this game because of how Brazil have looked? And I suppose the answer is keep it low scoring. Don't let them blitz you um, and hope that you can take it the distance. Um, and Gvardiol will be key to that, as will Lavaca. 
Novakovic, who's another one who's had a good tournament. Yeah, Gvardiol has been great. I mean, he's been around for a while. He really, I suppose, again, burst onto the scene in the last uh, European tournament, right, the Euros. Um, but he was playing as a left-back, I think, in that in that, in that that tournament. It just goes to show the, the sort of flexibility that he has, uh, the well-rounded skill set that he has, because um, he is just exceptional pretty much at every part of the game that you would expect from a from a centre-back. There's nothing really he can't do. So he's like really, really great in terms of the off-ball stuff, really great positionally. He can carry the ball super well, uh, a really excellent progressive passer as well, and good aerially. So like, there's just no weaknesses to his game. It's also left-footed, left-centre-back. So again, that's, that sort of thing is going to make you gold dust in, in, the, in the market. Yeah. Um, and we've seen him perform really well uh, in this tournament as well. So um, a couple of really big challenges late on in, in the last game they played, um, just keeping them in, in that game long enough to, to get through to, to penalties. So yeah, Guardiola's a really, really fun player and, and he is one who will be at an elite. So he'll be playing in Champions League finals in, in years to come. So uh, worth worth get doing your homework now and, and getting to watch him. But he's going to have his work cut out against this, this Brazilian team because they've just got the most exciting front five I think in in the tournament just every position they have dangerous players they can rotate and yeah I don't envy him his task really I don't think anybody does I don't think any defender in the world look at that and going yeah you know what nice easy night for Josep Guardiola um, but but this is Brazil and, and they came into this tournament as favourites they're doing everything they can I think John to live up to that billing you know let's take the Cameroon game aside because it was really Brazil B um, but ultimately every game they've played they've either been breathtaking or they found a way and that kind of mishmash of the two elements i think is what leads me to look at them as favorites from here on in yeah for me the interesting thing about brazil is that they're actually quite a positionally focused team so we we've just talked a little bit about the spain upset against morocco and obviously spain are a team who are very positionally structured everyone knows the sorts of positions that their players are going to take up and actually this brazilian side is very similar to that so they do a lot of things that we see at the elite level in europe so we've already mentioned the front five they're going to try and exploit the spaces between the opposition centre-backs um, and and then behind them we see Chiche setting his team up with with a remarkably sort of European refs, rest defence as well so uh, they played Danilo in the last game at left back and yes he pushed forward in possession but um, when when the ball got into the final 30 then inverted into the middle and, and then Brazil have this sort of back three with two players in front of them in Casemiro and Danilo and they're just going to sit in the centre and they're going to try and break down opposition counter-attack so they set a really nice structure up there so really interesting, like structural approach from from Chiche. Um, the debate is always whether or not that over reliance on positional structure is going to shackle the players. Um, I think the South Korea game really put pay to any notion that you know these players are being held back creatively. Um, and actually, what we got then was a really really nice melding together of those positional um, structures with super creative players being able to problem solve in the moment as well. And I think the, the Richarlison goal where he starts juggling the ball with his head um, yes. is just an incredible goal. They, in went for the respect. curl on dribble. Uh, I yeah. wasn't expecting that at the World Cup. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But the, the, the thing that is always thrown at that kind of approach is this is not functional. You're not doing, you're not doing important things, but from that position, they then, create one of the most beautiful goals of the tournament with that third man run uh, where the ball is passed uh, into him. He steps over it and it goes to, I think it's Thiago Silva who plays it into his path and then they score yeah. that goal. Just a, a remarkable level of, of symbiosis between 
three like really technically gifted players being able to know exactly what the other one is going to do in each moment so that the the the, the South Korea defense was just nowhere to be seen um and yeah that's that's what I'm looking forward to I I I do like this sort of high level elite play where you've, you you know you've got plans for everything you've got plans for each phase of the game when you're trying to exploit the opponent but then when you add to that this the the ability of having just the technical players that Brazil have being able to play with that sort of relation between them all it's just it's really quite exciting yeah I mean and, and then you add to that the fact that this depth especially in forward areas is frightening in in so many ways obviously we've seen Gabby Martinelli come off the bench and really the better player and he was the best player in that Cameroon game I thought for, for Brazil and Jen. Really, I think when when he's come on, he's been lively and bright. You've got Anthony, you've got Rodrigo. Obviously, we've we've sadly seen Gabriel Jesus go home, but even Pedro, who is a Flamengo player who's having a good season himself, you know, over in Brazil, is is someone that you could bring on and just do something different with. And and with all of that in mind, it just kind of Brazil, if they can't break you down with the first team, then you get this kind of wave of players thrown at you, and you're like, ah, oh, I have to deal with Gabby Martinelli after 90 minutes of of running after Vinicius Jr. That is not what any right back in the world wants. Yeah, and I think we saw that in the Switzerland game as well. That Chiche had the ability to bring on Rodrigo for for the uh, Pacatá was playing in that position. But you then got Vinicius Junior and Rodrigo, who played together at club level, able to to interchange, rotate, and and, and inter interact in that in that wide left space. So um, it's not simply that he's got like a great depth of of options off the bench. He's also got like functional dynamics between players off the bench as well, which I think can can often help you in these sorts of moments as well. So yeah, it, it's it's very hard to look past this Brazil side because everything is in its right place. And if it doesn't work, as you've said, they can problem solve well enough to to win games in, in maybe a bit of a more of an ugly manner as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. It's just the, the different options they have. And I think the Switzerland game was a, a really interesting kind of manner of, of how that was that kind of played out. And they were like, they just keep grinding and grinding and grinding until something comes off. Uh, and that's what makes them incredibly scary as well as incredibly technical. Um, I mean, John, are there any weaknesses in this Brazil side that Croatia can look to exploit? Because I don't think that they're perfect, but I think they're probably the closest thing we have to perfect on this World Cup scene so mm -hmm. far. Well, we've mentioned the structure and uh, their structure is it, it sort of hangs on the ability to get these five players in the forward line um, and then have your your five players defending behind them in, in that moment. It's a very risky way of playing, right? We've seen it for Spain against Morocco in that, you know, Spain dominate the game, but then the, 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 the more dangerous looking scenarios come from when Morocco win the ball back and are able to counterattack at pace. So a team like Brazil, I think, are always going to be in danger of being able to be opened up like that. But I'm just not convinced that Croatia really are the team to be able to make the most of that. So it 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 uh, maybe that's a bit defeatist of me at this point, but that's going to be the best chance that Croatia have to be able to hit uh, Brazil in some kind of counter-attacking moment. Um, and yes, they have the central midfielders to be able to do that, but we've talked already about the the forward line. I just don't think that forward line necessarily the, the, the players who are just going to be able to hit the the Brazil side at pace in those moments when maybe the Brazil structure is compromised a little bit. So that's the best chance they have, but whether or not they have the players to make the most of it, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'd agree. A lot lying on the shoulders of one Ivan Perisic, you'd imagine, if Croatia are going to get anything out of this game. John, thank you so much for coming back on the Athletic Soccer Show and talking to me about Croatia-Brazil. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's always a pleasure chatting, Jack. Okay, after the break, we are going to be talking about Argentina, Netherlands. Stick with us. 
Welcome to part two of the Athletic Soccer Show's quarter-final preview here to talk the Netherlands against Argentina. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined live from Qatar by Mr. Jay Harris. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm doing really good. I've actually just been to uh, the Netherlands training base to hear from Virgil van Dijk and Andreas Knockert. Um, so yeah, very interesting. Although there's, as you can probably hear, a gentleman to my right who's having a little bit of a, a catastrophe with some sort of manacle cough, but we'll power through. We'll get on through it. These are the, the thrills and spills of the convention centre, I can imagine. How is it, Jay? How How is life in Qatar? Are you enjoying yourself? Yeah, really enjoying myself. This is my first major international tournament abroad. I did a little bit of the, the women's Euros in the summer. But this is like, you're, you just end up being in a bubble, um, constantly thinking about football, constantly, what's the next story? What's the next game? Um, I've been to Ghana versus, Ghana versus Uruguay on the Friday night, Argentina, Australia. France, Poland, Croatia, Japan. So just four completely different games with four completely unique stories um, successively. And then Morocco beat Spain last night. So you're like, wow, like this is just like an absolute feast of football. So many different things going on. And also, I've never been to the Middle East before. Um, chance to experience like a different country, a different culture. Obviously, there's things about the tournament that are not particularly great, um, but it's still intriguing to, to see how things work in a different place. Um, so yeah, really enjoying it. Absolutely. Well, you continue enjoying yourself. I hope that it continues to provide uh, a feast of football. And look, this quarterfinal is a footballing feast in itself, right? When I was looking at this on, on the board, on, on the wall chart back here in the UK, <laughs> and it says, you know, you write in your little things, you get Netherlands, Argentina, and underneath it just says iconic, which is the name of the, <laughs> nadium, uh, name of the stadium. And and it is exactly what it is, right? It's it is an iconic World Cup matchup. The orange, the Albi Celeste, the orange and blue and white stripes. If you're thinking of classic World Cup matchups, this is one that springs to mind immediately. And we've been throwing it up in a really intriguing game in a quarterfinal. Yeah, and obviously what Virgil van Dijk was asked about in the press conference was, what can you remember of 1998 and Burkamp and, and is there a little bit of a score to settle? Uh, and they instantly tried to play that down and said, Look, of course, we, we grew up with memories of that game, but this is a different generation. We're not really too worried about that. We're just concentrated on the fact that, you know, we're three games away from potentially winning the, the World Cup for the first time in the Netherlands' history. But as you said, in terms of the matchup, it, it, it's mouthwatering. There's no other way to put it. You've got an Argentina team who were heavy favourites going into the competition and lose their first game to Saudi Arabia. So ever since, they've been basically trying to prove people that they are the real deal. Um, and they've been bailed out by Messi on a, on a couple of occasions, really, even against Australia on Saturday. They probably suffered in that game in the final five, ten minutes, way more than anybody expected. Um, and then the Orangi, as you said, I've been impressed with, but not overly. Um, they've obviously looked quite solid at the back, but going forward, it's not really clicked. I think they've been a little bit too over-reliant on Gapo and Depay. I know, De, I know Depay's not played that much at this tournament through, through injury, but when he has played, um, certainly feels like the only real goal-scoring threats the team have are, are Gapo and Depay. Um, but they're through to the quarterfinals. Sometimes that's all you need to make sure you, you, know, you get through to the serious stuff and then other players kind of come to the fore. Um, but it's going to be really interesting. How do you think this matches up, Jay, as a contest? We, we've seen Louis van Gaal and you've seen him in the flesh talking about the way that he set his side up 
to play in these games. Uh, we saw him say that they're not going to change for anybody because no one's going to change for them, which means that we can expect this kind of reactive style, I suppose, that we saw against the US to continue. Now, there is an argument to say that as the tournament progresses and they come up against bigger and better teams, with all respect to the US, you look at you know the route they would have to the final, which is you know realistically going to be Argentina and then probably Brazil and then one of France, England or Portugal, all of whom are going to look to have the ball realistically, you start to think maybe that is a strategy that might play out slightly better as the level of competition increases. And yet you look at that game against the US and you think of how much time and space they were given on the ball at times, you know, maybe not in the areas that the US wanted, but definitely there were, there were areas where the Netherlands sat off them. You go, is that actually a feasible way to play against opposition of this caliber? I think uh, the first thing I'd say that's actually quite funny is that a journalist just asked in the press conference, he asked Van Dyke, basically that Argentina were the first strong team they've come up against at this tournament. <laughs> and the whole the whole room starts bursting out laughing. I immediately thought of my, my US guys. And um, obviously Virgil Van Dyke said, look, I think that's very disrespectful of you. But I will also recognise that Messi's one of the, the greatest players of all time. So I kind of get where you're coming from. I thought their game plan was quite clever against the US to be honest we we knew that the US prefer to be a team that's in transition so why not just give them the ball and see if they can break the Netherlands down and, and they didn't really have the answers I mean Wright's goal I still can't get over how that went in it just completely, de completely defied aerodynamics and, and physics um, but I think the only trouble with with sitting off against Argentina is that they've got the players who can hurt you in possession they've got Lionel Messi who Obviously, everybody talks about his finishing, but what I was about to say, what people don't appreciate as much, but that's a total lie. Everybody appreciates all of the things he does, but he's also a phenomenal passer of the ball. Yeah. Um, and they've obviously not just got him, they've got other players as well that can cause and create damage. So it feels like if the Netherlands were to be a little bit more reactive against Argentina, they definitely run the risk of, of just giving them more opportunities. But having said that, the Netherlands defence has been really good in this competition so far. And um, they've not really been been too troubled. They've obviously been playing with a back three, Van Dijk, Timber and Ake, and they've looked pretty good. Um, even with Blind and Dumfries, we know how amazing Dumfries is as a right wing back foot for Inter Milan and, and Blind's a little bit more defensive. So they can either be really offensive going forward in a bit of a 3-4, 3-5, whichever kind of variation of it, it is type formation, or they can drop back into a 5-3-2 type thing. So I think they're flexible enough, whereas I feel like Argentina are probably a little bit more rigid in their system and their structure. And what I would say is that Argentina just seemed quite clumsy at the back. There are a couple of times against Australia and obviously Saudi Arabia where some of the mistakes they made were like the players were playing on ice. And I know that's a real cliche, but it, it yeah. did kind of look like that. Just some of the things they were doing were, were so bizarre. It wasn't necessarily great play from their opponents. It was just kind of poor um, decision-making or man-marking from Argentina. So I certainly think they're way more vulnerable at the back than the Netherlands are at this moment in time. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And, and actually, it's, it's a point I wanted to come on to in terms of we haven't really seen anyone dribble at the at the Argentina back line yet. You know, yes, a little bit in the Saudi Arabia game, but actually you you hop back to that and Argentina had so much of the ball that the two goals kind of came out of the blue and then it, then the game completely flipped in its head and Argentina just had mm -hmm. the ball for the rest of it almost. You, you look at the rest of these games, you've not really seen anyone run at this back line. And, and look, I, I think there's plenty to be said for the fact that Otamendi is having a good tournament, but I also think you can unsettle him 
by dribbling at him with quick feet. I think that Acuna and Montiel in particular are defenders who you can get at. Yes, they offer things going forward, but you can get at them, you know, the other way. I think you could probably say the same for Dumfries, but Argentina haven't played without an out wingers and it's going to be interesting to see how they do that. There is a kind of question of if you get Hakpo and, uh, and Memphis Depay running at these defenders, the Netherlands will fancy their chances of causing causing danger. Yeah, definitely. You've obviously mentioned Acuna. Well, first of all, he's a converted winger. So we've obviously seen some converted wingers go on to become fantastic fullbacks, but a lot of them, they're still going to ha- kind of have those um, defensive inefficiencies. And with Gakpo and Depay, we, we saw it in the last match against the US. Some of their one-twos in and around the box were simply phenomenal. And if they get into that situation against Argentina, then I'd back them to, to cause a bit of damage. But as I said, my worry is that if Argentina can work out a way to, to shut those two down, I look at the rest of that Netherlands team and I'm not really too confident where they'd get a goal from. Klassen's been okay, but not amazing. Um, obviously, De Jong scored, but you're not going to bank on him to score regularly. Um, and so it's a little bit like, what do you do then? Do you just rely on service from out wide from Blinden Dumfries? Um, I have to say, the open training session I watched, which was an hour and a half, which is cool, by the way. Um, Stephen Burkhardt looked really good, so I wonder if maybe they'll trust him to come off the bench, but just feels like, yes, Gakpo and Depay can get at Argentina, but if Scaloni is clever enough to, to work out a plan to shut them two down, then then Argentina could could face, I don't want to say an easy game, um, but they could find their way through it pretty comfortably. We've seen Argentina in the last couple of games shift to a three at the back themselves, um, and they shifted to it relatively early in the game against Australia. Papu Gomez obviously forced off with an injury, could have gone like for like, didn't, went into this back three shape that does give the wing backs a little bit more cover. It allows them to get up and down a little bit more. It gives Argentina, I think, a little bit more width when they're not playing with natural wide men. And it means that Alvarez is able to kind of run the channels whilst Messi sits in a little bit deeper. Do you think that change was maybe something that they were thinking about with this game in mind that that actually they could match up man for man against the Netherlands and see if that is a a way they can find a a breakthrough because it seemed to get the best out of some of these midfielders Um, I think Enzo has looked really good in this shape I I think Rodrigo de Pau looks a little bit more comfortable in in a three than than slightly where he has been especially without Gilles Celso and I just wonder if Scaloni is thinking about going man for man with the Netherlands Definitely, because the way the few times I have seen vulnerabilities with the Netherlands really is if you can get in behind Blind and Dumfries very quickly. And against Australia, that's what we saw Alvarez do repeatedly. He just kept dying out wide. I think Australia's um, left back is Behic and um, Alvarez just kept kind of darting into that channel, causing him all kinds of, of, of problems. And if that's the situation where Alvarez is doing that behind Blind, then the Netherlands are going to get uncomfortable very, very quickly. And then, like you said, Messi can kind of float in between the lines. And, and that's kind of the tricky thing. Does Van Dijk or Ake or Timber step up to kind of take responsibility of, of Messi in those moments? Or does one of De Jong or Darun kind of drop in and, and take over him? So that kind of variety that Scaloni maybe inadvertently or accidentally introduced because of the injury um, that he kind of not stumbled upon, like I said, maybe he did it on purpose, maybe it was just a happy fluke, but that kind of thing that he found upon, that flexibility and that 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 potential to mix it up a little bit, is definitely going to help them be less predictable. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how they line this one up, and and actually, you know, Lissandro Martinez, when he's come on and played, has been has been excellent. The other, well, his namesake, Although, shall we say. Go on. I have to say, it was so 
maybe funny makes me sound cruel, but when I saw Lissandro Martinez come on and then Australia needed a goal late on and I saw Harry Suter, I was like, please send Harry Suter up, please, please, please. And just to kind of see that mismatch on a football pitch for even a brief moment was uh, was very funny. Although, yeah. as you said, Martinez did Martinez was fine. He did his thing. He's been fine for, for pretty much his whole career, right? He, he just, he steps up to these challenges and he, he makes them work somehow or other. He passes men on well, he does it all. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, Lissandro Martinez has been excellent. His namesake, Lautaro, uh, has been dreadful. And, you know, obviously started the, the tournament as the look like it was going to be Argentina's number nine. Um, has lost that spot to Julian Alvarez pretty comfortably. Came on, missed three sitters. And actually, you look at some of these games, and we've been talking about Argentina as maybe being unconvincing. They probably should have been 4 nil up at half time if he could have timed his runs right against Saudi Arabia. Um, there were multiple missed opportunities in the games against Mexico and against Poland for, for various members of this team, not just him. And then he should have had a hat-trick in the second half against Australia. <laughs> once he came on. If Martinez had scored as he normally scores, we'd be talking about this Argentina side as real contenders because they would have absolutely thumped a couple of teams. Instead, that profligacy has led to the point where we're actually slightly unconvinced about Argentina, and that's a major worry. Yeah, and what I find strange is that if those two goals, or, or if at least one of those goals had counted against Saudi Arabia, we might be sitting here having a completely different conversation about how Lotaro is absolutely ripping up the tournament. It's funny how things in football and in life in general can just spin on such marginal decisions. Um, I think it was after the Poland game, I think my colleague James Horncastle w w was at, and Lautaro walked through the, the mix zone for people who don't know what the mix zone is. It's kind of like an area after a football match where players walk through and reporters can ask them a question, but players don't have to stop. It's kind of very much up to them. And apparently, Lutaro, the look on his face, like he was just absolutely raging with anger um, because he keeps missing these opportunities and it's baffling. And, and it very much against Australia gave me the impression of someone who is just super low on confidence because one of those finishes in particular he could have taken an extra touch and then nestled it in the bottom corner and he just kind of just absolutely swipes at it in it and it balloons over the bar. And for a player of his quality, this should be the kind of tournament where he really shows to the world how good he is and he's just not doing that at the moment. Um, so, yes, Argentina would be in a better place if Lutaro was firing, but then it's it's a problem that for whatever reason he's not managed to kind of fully get it clicking. And 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 most importantly of all, it's a shame he's not not been able to kind of show his potential. Yeah, agreed. Although it has opened the door and Julian Alvarez has stepped right through it and said, thank you very much. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, right, before we go, Jay, how do you see this playing out and where's the game won and lost? I think I'm probably biased because I spent a lot of time with the Netherlands over the last week, but I do, I do think they'll win. Um, I think they remind me a little bit of England under Gareth Southgate, especially four years ago uh, and just at the Euros in terms of the fact they're they're quite a functional team. They've obviously got great attacking talents who kind of pop up and deliver in, in key moments, but I don't think they're the most sensational or exciting team to watch. Um, but in tournament football, if the Netherlands won this competition, no one would ever bang on about, oh, they didn't play particularly well or they weren't the most exciting. They just go on about how the Netherlands won. Um, and so I think just that kind of defensive resilience they've shown, yes, there's kind of some fragility there, but I don't think they've, they've ever really truly looked rattled in any game so far. Whereas Argentina, they're a side that kind of lives and dies on emotion, as it were. Um, and I feel like 
if they do get rattled and and you know the gaps and spaces do up open up, which I expect they will, because as I've as I've mentioned, I've not been impressed by their defence at all. Maybe the switch to a back three um is the remedy for that. Um, but I just feel like the Netherlands will get chances, and I feel like Gakpo will kind of put them away. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think it's a fair assumption to make at this point from what we've seen from both of these teams. And um, Jay, thank you so much for joining us again on the Athletic Soccer Show, and enjoy this game. You're going to be there. Yeah, I am. I got my accreditation through earlier. So, yeah, absolutely buzzing. Um, I don't even know what stadium it's at. I think you said it's at the Iconic Stadium. But it's I at the Iconic, it is. I literally, two hours before a game, I'm like, where am I supposed to be in two hours' time? And I'm just well, That's a nice work. problem to have, right? And you wouldn't have that in any other tour. It is a nice problem to have. But, no, I think um, super excited for the game. Like I said, so excited to be here. Just at a World Cup is crazy to say I'm going to a World Cup quarterfinal. It's fun for it to be Netherlands, Argentina. And just the kind of history and prestige that these two teams have makes it even better. Um, hopefully, it won't go to extra time and penalties because the last two nights have. And so I'd appreciate an early night. So if Gakpo and Messi could just get the job done early either way, then yeah, much thanks in advance. <laughs> appreciate it. Well, enjoy it, Jay. Thank you so much for joining us as ever. And we'll be back. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Athletic Soccer Show. It's time to talk about our third quarterfinal, and I'm joined by the one and only Peter Rutzler. How are you doing, mate? Not too bad, mate. Not too bad. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm enjoying discussing all these quarterfinals with such a wonderful array of guests. Again, I feel like we're back on the preview show. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. So, But this one, I think, is is a particularly intriguing quarterfinal in a way that maybe some of the others aren't. I mean, the first one, obviously, the, the game between Croatia and Brazil is one of those where we think it's going to be one-sided. And then the other two, the Netherlands, Argentina, the France, England, they feel like classic World Cup matchups at this point, which are really hard to split between two excellent sides. This one feels a bit more 
random, I think, in many ways. And not because these teams haven't been good. I think both of them across the course of the tournament have, have been have varied from good to excellent in, in different games. But actually because we're kind of a little bit unsure as to what two teams we're going to see here in this game and how this one's going to play out. I mean, what are your first and overall thoughts on, on this tie? Well, first of all, I'm glad that Morocco have made it to the quarterfinals. I, I know we were pretty close to what you'd call a, a slate of footballing classic World Cup classic teams, classic nations with a, with a storied history. Um, when you look at, you know, even you probably would count Croatia in that, even though they're a relatively young nation in, in the grand scheme of the World Cup. But, you know, that all the countries that have made it this far, you, know, you go from England to France, Brazil, Argentina, it's South America, it's Europe. Um, so to see Morocco make it, and as you said, make it on merit, is a really positive thing. It adds a bit more of un the unknown. I guess that's that random element, as you said. Um, and, and and it should produce a quite a good tie, actually. Um, it should produce a very good uh, test for Portugal, who themselves have their own interesting narratives coming into this, particularly, obviously, off the back of uh, Gonzalo Ramos's hat-trick, what it means for Cristiano Ronaldo. Have Portugal suddenly discovered um, or unleashed this new, fluid, dynamic, youthful um, generation, really? Are they now going to be able to show their full potential? Or will Morocco continue to prove so many people wrong, to continue to, to shine and impress with their really well-balanced team, this very effective style of play? Um, and it makes for a really fascinating matchup, which doesn't quite have the same story element but I think it's really important to write new stories rather than to continually look back on those nations that have been there done it um and yeah let, let's see how far Morocco can go because I, I'm, I'm excited by them yeah I, I think you're right I think there's always just a time for nostalgia uh, and there is loads of nostalgia across these quarterfinals and, and and looking back at matchups that have come before um but I think there's as you say always space to to write new stories and and, and ink new history into the World Cup and you know Morocco will be looking to make themselves the first African nation to ever make a semi-final in the World Cup. This is a stat that is oft repeated. It is one of those that just always seems to be on, on the cusp of happening. But there's another aspect of that this time around because of the way that the next tournament is going to play out with 48 teams we see. And there is this kind of element that if Morocco were to make semi-finals, they would increase the African representation by a spot. Um, they'd get an extra spot on the back of that. And, and I think that's incredibly important too, to think about that Morocco are now shouldering hopes of of the entire continent as well as uh, as well as everything else as well as their own country's hopes and dreams there is this element of Africa is now relying on Morocco to try and secure them as much space as much kind of real estate in the next tournament as as they possibly can and, and I do think that that's an interesting dynamic especially with the fan bases that we've seen in Qatar being so heavily uh, weighted towards the North African and, and the Middle Eastern teams Morocco will be back to the hilt here yeah, absolutely. And I think there will be great support for them outside of South America, outside of Europe. And I think we've seen that anyway. I mean, e even uh, putting aside the fact that they could claim that extra spot for, for Africa uh, going into the next tournament. You know, I feel like there is a sense of, of pride and, 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 and association with, with Morocco's progress and their success. Um, and we kind of felt that a little bit in this tournament anyway, with the shocks we have seen almost narrowing presumptions and biases that state that you'd assume that South American and European teams will just be better than elsewhere in the world. There is that narrowing of the gap between the quality levels across the world. Um, and that's been really encouraging to see. You know, we've seen Japan, we've seen South Korea, 
We've seen, you know, uh, Ghana pull out shocks. It's it's been it's been really encouraging. The United States making the knockout rounds. Canada doing well. Growth of young teams. Uh, and Morocco, in a way, are kind of a figurehead for that. Um, and we see that with the, with the talent that they have at their disposal, using their best assets effectively. And those that aren't quite at that, you know, the top five European leagues or whatever else, really stepping up to the mark and, and holding their own. So I do agree. I do agree. And we, we've seen the scenes. I mean, in Morocco, it's the, the partying from, from Rabat to, to Marrakesh has been fantastic. And it's those kind of things we replicated across North Africa, across across the Middle East. We've seen the support, that the partisan nature of the crowd and how much that played a part in the shootout, that would certainly be replicated coming into these ties. They are the underdog, the underdog and everyone loves an underdog. Yes, they do. I mean, let's come on to the game. And I think there's a couple of questions that we can kind of pose ahead of this for both sides. But we'll start with Morocco. And this side have been exceptional across the kind of the board, really. And we know how good this first 11 is. You know, Bono and then Nasiri playing Sevilla, Hakimi at PSG, Aguerd at West Ham, although I haven't seen all that much of him. Saïs, we know from his time uh, at Wolverhampton Wanderers. Masraoui is at Bayern. Amrabat's at Fiorentina. Ziyech is at Chelsea. Bufal's had time in the Premier League. Nahi's one of those young talents really starting to drive through at this World Cup. Um, Ezazuli comes off the bench. He's a Barcelona player. There's a lot of talent in the kind of first eleven or just around it. Um, and the question, I think, has been throughout the tournament, have they got the quality off the bench to step on and make the difference in, in the kind of end of games when people are using their finishes, especially with five substitutes? Now, Morocco have ridden that wave, but I do wonder, you know, Naif was kind of not stretched off, but the stretcher came on and he hobbled off in tears in the last game. They have played 120 minutes plus the kind of nerve shredding element of penalties. Does there come a point where just the, the lack of depth, I suppose, in this side comes to a head at some point? Yeah, that, that is the major talking point. That's the big focus for, for a side like Morocco because you've got your jewels in the team. You've got those elements that come together to form a good team rather than a side that's got, we've got a really good player, but we're not going to get the best out of them because we don't know how to use them. We'll use them in the wrong positions. They're nicely balanced, which is really encouraging. Players playing in the right position, Ziyech, uh, Hakimi, uh, Masraoui, of course, is on, on the opposite side, but they, they've found a way to get the most out of them. But then what happens when you need to rely on the depth, when you do go to extra time, when you've worked so hard and you're bringing that depth off the bench. And I remember watching the Spain game and you saw the players that Spain were able to bring off the bench and even some of the younger players. You know, Ansu Fati was the one that first came to mind when I made my notes and I was like, Spain could win this and then Morocco will just be undone by the substitutions they've made because the contrast was quite stark with Chadira coming off and Chadira worked very hard, but Chadira had three chances to win the game. Um that will become more telling as the tournament progresses because, as you say, knocks happen. There's more. There is a chance of extra time. Morocco will likely want to take some of these big boys to, to extra time, um, and it's how you adapt and how you cope with that. Um, clearly, ensuring that people like Aguerre are fit is important. We saw Sice go down with a hamstring issue, but soldiered on. How how you know how you're able to continue doing those kind of things as the games progress? Yellow cards, bookings, things like that. So. It becomes a lot harder. And that's where the, the bigger nations with the bigger talent pools really can make them up because they're able to rotate. Those that come in don't quite have the same impact because what we've seen with Morocco, while they are so balanced, is that the key players have really shone. Hakim Ziyech has been excellent. Uh, Sofian Bufal as well. Sofian Amrabat in midfield has been phenomenal. So when you lose that, that's that's where the issue will be. But if they can stay fit, you know, if they can keep what they have so far, 
then of course they're going to have a chance. But this is this is how this is how tournaments like the World Cup work. You know, if you don't have that all round quality, then then you can become unstuck. On the flip side, you know, they have been excellent throughout uh, and they've been incredibly hard to break down. They've conceded one goal, not just at this World Cup, but under the entire tenureship of, of Walid Regragi. Um, they were good, I thought, at the AFCON at the start of the year without being excellent. They were definitely the most fun team to watch. That was under their previous coach, Halahodzic. Mm -hmm. He was removed for various reasons, but notably because he wouldn't play Hakim Ziyech. Um, but it, you, you look at that and you, Regragi's come in, he's he's definitely got the kind of respect of not only the team, but the people back home. He feels like a, one of their own representing the country. And I think that's a massive step. Um, but equally, you know, the, tactically, they're incredibly well set out. They, they know exactly what they're doing. They funnel teams out wide to try. Um, so people try and get down their fullbacks. And there you have Hakimi and Masrawi waiting for you. That's no easy task by any stretch of imagination. They forced Spain into trying things that they didn't want to try. They reduced Spain to one shot on target in 120 minutes. There was complaints from Rodri about saying the way that Morocco played. But the way that Morocco played beat Spain. That's as simple as that. Um, and, and then on the counter, and but also in possession, they have incredible amounts of talent. Amrabat is a, is a wonderful possession footballer. I watch him quite regularly at Fiorentina. He, he's one of those players that knocks the ball about really well, as well as covering and, and shielding ground well. Um, Unahi is really explosive, as you mentioned. And then Bufal and Ziyech, as you, as you said, have had really, really good tournaments in both are capable of skipping past a player. You look at the Portuguese fullbacks, and, and Diogo Dalot, I think, is a wonderful one-on-one -on -one defender, but but you can't say the same for Rafael Guerreiro, who is a great attacking force, but uh, is definitely someone you can get at. And if Ziyech is running at him, he's going to cause him problems. Yeah, 100%. I think that's going to be the key contest in this game. We'll be on the flanks um, because that's where Morocco are so strong, not just because of their fullbacks defensively and they'll need them against a very good Portuguese attack, but going the other way, there is that that flair, that unpredictability about their wingers, hardworking wingers who can create something out of nothing and the fullbacks to go with it. And when you have that combination, which clearly they're on the way, the same wavelengths, they've been really impressive, that will cause problems. And what we saw in the Switzerland-Portugal game was, was Guerrero having a field day. It was a dream game. The space he was able to get on that right-hand side, how unbalanced and unsettled Switzerland looked in that shape with, with Edin Milson Fernandes on that side. It just didn't work. You're not going to get that here. It's going to be a complete difference, providing they're fit, of course, as we were mentioning before. But if they are... That's a different challenge for, for someone like Guerrero. He may be forced to be more defending. He will have to be clever in transition. Um, and that's where Portugal will need the likes of William Carvalho. They'll need the likes of Otavio to be smart in the way that they manage the game um, and manage their periods in possession because Morocco, they're very good in transition. They have the energy. They can find mistakes. And if they leave gaps, if the likes of Guerrero do push on or Cancelo if he plays, then there may be opportunities for them to exploit. And it will certainly be on those sides because Morocco want the game out there, as you say. That's what they did to Spain. I thought Amrabat was impeccable. The way they just hounded Busquets, made Pedri and Gavi barely got into the game and they had to use their channels and, and Spain weren't able to do that well enough. They weren't able to go beyond the fullbacks. Play to your strengths. And if Morocco can have that game based on those wide areas, then, then they know they will have a chance because their quality is, well, some of the best in the world out there, especially at fullback. Yeah, agreed. Uh, agreed. I mean, something you said there, we, we all love a, a, an underdog story right at the start. And I think that's true. But it does mean that Portugal remain clear favourites, I would say, going into this game. I think that Morocco can cause them problems. But if Morocco were to qualify, it would still count as an upset, I think, across the course of, of this mm -hmm. World Cup. And what it leads us to is, is Portugal. And 
this big question that hangs over them now because Gonzalo Ramos comes in for Cristiano Ronaldo, he scores a hat-trick and gets an assist. Rafael Guerreiro comes in for Joao Cancelo, he gets a goal and an assist. And the question becomes, has Fernando Sanchez got the minerals? Has he got the stones? Has he got the goal to leave that side out there again? Because it's a massive decision to drop Cristiano Ronaldo once. It's an absolutely, you know, ginormous decision to drop him twice. I think the performance we saw against Switzerland really helps him. It really helps him because you, I think this is the other question, the unsaid question. Does Fernando Santos prefer his team without Cristiano Ronaldo or not? And I'm sure he will never answer that, at least while he's in the job. Um, but, but we've seen how effective they were last night. And that will give him license to maintain it. And it'd be so difficult to change it as well. I think this is the problem now. Like if if he were to change it to bring back Ronaldo, he actually probably creates a rod for his own back there. Because if then the performance falters, he says, well, why didn't you stick to it? I think he knows. I think sure Ronaldo will know as well. You can't drop Gonzalo Ramos after that performance. You, the way that Jao Felix was, was uh, exploited the space, played for such freedom... Bruno Fernandes is having a fantastic tournament, by the way, as well. It's almost like because there's been so much noise around Portugal, we're just forgetting Fernandes, you know, another assist against Switzerland. Two goals, three assists, yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's... It's, that's, it's golden ball potential kind of stuff. Oh, that's, that's where we're at. Absolutely, absolutely. And it, having his influence, I think the same applies really at Manchester United. You know, we saw how influential he was before Ronaldo and how that sort of tapered afterwards. But that's another conversation. Um, what for, for Santos, it's quite clear. You know, it's you've got a, you've got a good team playing very well, can't really change it. Um, and what the questions may come for sure, but considering the dynamic that it's left in the, in the game against Switzerland, the momentum that that's built, you want to maintain that. You want to harness that. Um, and let's see. Let's see. Let's see what happens. But for, for the good thing he has is depth. You know, if things go wrong in this game, the, the ability to bring off Rafael Leal off the bench or say he lost Williams to bring on someone like Neves or, or Palina, it's, it's across the park, isn't it? There's so many options available to him. And I actually think fullback will be the interesting question, to be honest, who who does play at fullback. I know, obviously, the Ronaldo is the focus, but will Guerrero keep... But Guerrero was excellent, but this is going to be a different game, a very different game with, with different focuses. So, yeah, I'm curious to see what happens there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, the fullbacks versus the wingers, as you mentioned, is, is the key battle as far as I'm concerned. The other one remains, I think, what you mentioned there, Bruno Fernandes against Sofian Amrabat. Mm. could well dictate how this game goes because I think that that kind of diamond shape that Portugal are playing in the middle, in the, in the midfield four, um, much as it's fluid and dynamic, does rely on Fernandes pulling strings from the middle of the park. And and I think that Amrabat playing against him, having the tournament of his life, uh, I think by, by, by all accounts, uh, running up against Bruno Fernandes could be absolutely crucial to how this one plays out. Um, thank you very much, Mr. Peter Ratzer, for for doing Morocco versus Portugal with me. It's been a real pleasure, Peter. Uh, as always, Jack, as always. I'm looking forward to the games. Yes, it's going to be an exciting one. Uh, we'll be back with our fourth quarterfinal after this. Welcome back to part four of this World Cup quarterfinal preview on the Athletic Soccer Show, where we're talking about the last of those games, England versus France on Saturday. And I'm delighted to be joined by TIFO Football's Seb Stafford-Bloor. Seb, how are you doing? Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Jack. I'm doing good. 
it's um it, we're reaching the sort of tail end of these now we get we're getting to them but uh there are eight games left uh this by the time this comes around there'll be five games left england versus france it is generally seb a clash of titans in this competition two of the teams that have performed the best so far i think across across this tournament you know the two of the sides that haven't really blipped i mean let's take france his B team lost to Tunisia out of things. The two sides have looked most in control, and, and it sets us up for a tantalising clash. Sure does, Jack. I think also an interesting thing there is like it's two sides who haven't really been tested yet either. I think throughout the groups and through the round of sixteen, there were shades of well, there were glimpses of what these teams' flaws might be um, for France, probably in the sort of the opening half hour against Poland. Like before Jury settled the nerves and they kind of ran away with it a little bit. And England, similarly, in the first half an hour against Senegal, they didn't look particularly clever. They didn't seem to deal too well with being pressed, particularly at centre-half. Um, and so it really will be interesting because um, uh, crucial ingredients for a quarter-final, both these teams have the, um, have the tools to hurt each other. Um, and uh, goodness, there's a lot of brilliant attacking footballers on the pitch at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is it. And and lots of the discourse here and, and generally, I think, has been around the idea of Kylian Mbappe, right? And rightly so, five goals into this tournament, he's leading the golden boot charts as we speak. Uh, and basically, nobody's had any idea how to stop him, it, it, generally across 90 minutes. And there were some really interesting interviews with Matty Cash after the Poland game where he was just like, yeah, I'm going to be having nightmares about that for weeks. So I did everything I could and he still got two goals and an assist. There's there's not much I could have done more. Um, do England change their shape to deal with this? Is this going to be Kyle Walker at right centre-back and Kieran Trippier at right wing-back in order to kind of double down on Mbappe and try and deal with him? Or will Southgate stick to the shape that's served him so well so far? Yeah, I, I think that's what I go for. I, I think I take the back three. Walker is the outside man in the, as a centre half, and then Trippier outside. Um, but I think it's it's equally important what happens ahead of them. I think Jordan Henson has to play uh, because I think over the course of his career in club football, I think one of his strengths has been dropping into that position, right? um, protecting Trent Alexander Arnold, allowing him to become the fullback, wing back, whatever that, that he did uh, over the course of his career. Um, and whatever other strengths Henderson has, that's clearly one of them. Um, I think there is a danger, though, Jack, in the sense that whenever you come across a player like this, I think you can worry about playing him instead of playing kind of the, the galaxy of other attacking players that France yeah. have. Like, I mean, um, I was talking to somebody earlier and we were kind of talking about this game and it took about 10 minutes before we even mentioned Usman Dembele, for instance, um, one of the most destructive ball carriers in European football. Like, I know that... Um, his season hasn't quite been what it might have been, um, but as a year, take his year as a whole, he's really rediscovered what he had a few years ago, and he's yeah. really, really rebuilt his reputation. And he'll be more than a match for Luke Shaw on the other side. I would have thought. Um, I think it's about making sure that, like, I don't think it's necessarily a game one on like who gets picked where. It's about making sure that Mbappe is never isolated with one on one with with a single player because I, I don't think there's a single player in world football that can handle that. Like um, poor Matty Cash, bless him, um, didn't do an awful lot wrong in that game. And I think there was um, there was a moment in that match which really um, typified who Mbappe is now as a player. When um, it was his first goal, the ball got worked across the area, and Poland handled him in exactly the way he should, which is to take away the angle wide, like, to take away the shot across the keeper, um, and to invite him onto his weaker foot. And yet. He has so much disguise. His backlift is so quick and he's able to generate so much power that none of that mattered. So the point is that you just can't 
Um, some of the things he does, I don't think you can legislate for. Um, but I think having Walker in there, having his pace, having Henson blocking up that area. Also noticed um, in that polling game, France construct that network of players on the left-hand side. So I include probably Hernandez, Rabiot, Chouameni when he drifts to the left. Um, obviously also Mbappe and Antoine Griezmann. Like it's kind of a network of four or five players that cluster towards that touchline, create the kind of numerical superiorities. I think that's what England have to interfere with um, and disrupt because I think by the time the ball goes to Mbappe, it's kind of too late, right? Like you got to make sure you you disturb the supply. That's the key with a player like that. Um, half the battle is just making sure that he's not able to get the ball in the positions he wants to get the ball in, like which is don't have him running into space, don't have him one-on-one, don't allow him to cut and field and drive towards the penalty box. Uh, it's a pretty long list. <laughs> yeah, you can't there's let a lot do. of things you can't let Mbappe yeah. do if you're trying to stop him. But um, I mean, look, if if anyone has the tools to do some of these things, at the very least, then then Carl Walker feels like a good fit. I mean, athletically, I, I think technically, he's a player who's who's been there and done this before, and and not necessarily played Mbappe off the park. I don't think anyone's really done that. But ultimately, he's someone who's come up against some unbelievable wingers in his time, and has has the tools in his toolkit to to be able to at least start to deal with some of the problems that that the killing Mbappe offers. But one of the things, I mean, I think it's really interesting that you, you talked about Usman Dembele there because. Because the next person I was going to bring up was Antoine Griezmann. And so what are we, seven minutes in and we haven't yeah. haven't spoken about Antoine Griezmann because he's having a wonderful tournament, playing in a slightly more withdrawn role. And in a club season that hasn't been desperate, but hasn't definitely been light up the world again on my, on my yeah. great return, return homecoming. Um, it's been interesting to see how he fitted into the side. But playing in almost a Paul Pogba-esque role from the last tournament, I would say, he's been pulling strings from midfield and it's lovely to watch him in this kind of form. He's been magnificent. Like I also, I don't think I've ever seen him play that role because I, I've seen it, I've seen people discuss it as like a number 10. I don't really think it is that. I think it's more of a kind of, he's playing really as an eight. If you look at where he's received passes and where he's played passes from on the pitch, like it's more as a kind of a free eight, actually. And he's, um, I, I, I've seen Antoine Griezmann play as a centre forward. I've seen him play as a wide forward, and I've seen him play as that kind of shadow forward, um, probably in his kind of first first spell at Atletico Madrid, and very very occasionally at Barcelona. But I don't think I've ever seen him play more of an orchestrating role in a team. And if anything, um, if you compare France's performances in this tournament with what they produced in the Euros, what they produced in 2018 World Cup, even though they won it. And what they produced in 2016 when they lost to Portugal in the final. I think this is the most enjoyable I found it to watch France. And a big part of that is him. I, his, what's the right word, Jack? I, I would say humility. Uh, because when you have a centre forward who's got an ego, and Antoine Griezmann does have an ego, we, we, we yeah. can see that, like some of the things that have been produced, like social media wise, um, film wise. Um, he has a regard for himself as a player, which he should do because he's, he's achieved wonderful things and he's a brilliant footballer. Um, when you ask someone like that to do more of a facilitating job within a side, sometimes you can have issues. Like sometimes, right, you're going to defer to Olivier Giroud and you, you know, you're going to facilitate uh, Osman Dembele off the right side. Uh, he's done all of these things to really, really high standard and I'm uh, full of admiration for what he's achieved during the tournament. Um, and it's a big reason why um, I think France is like where in the past we've seen a very pragmatic France who don't take risks. I think aesthetically they've been so smooth at times and their use of the ball has been so good and their ability, uh, we talked about what must what England mustn't allow to happen, but their ability to get the ball to, to Mbappe. Also, I would say 
um, the kind of the the level of performance that um, Adrian Rabio has been able to achieve. Another guy who had a very tough time in twenty twenty at yeah. Euro twenty twenty um, Championships, even though it was twenty twenty one. I'm still stumbling over that eighteen months later. Um, like this is a big part of what Griezmann um, has enabled the side to do because I think Rabio is a better player when there's no real emphasis on him to create. There's no emphasis on him to be a kind of match when he's just able to play. And I think that's what we've seen. And Griezmann has just been fundamental to so many parts of what's made France good and what makes them um, so intimidating as opponents in the quarterfinals. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. I mean, that just facilitating collaboration would be, would be one of those things I think you're looking at. And, and, and I think you're right about Rabiot. That's, that's a really interesting point because you're absolutely spot on. You don't ask him to create. You can allow him to create an overload occasionally in, in the final third and actually be on the end of something. And you're like, oh, wow. Rabiot's yeah. got a goal and an assist, and he's barely been in the opposition box, but he has that ability to explode into life very, very briefly if you don't ask him to make all those passes outside it. So I, I think that's a really interesting kind of counter, not counterpoint, that's, that's the wrong word, but kind well, of dual standard on it. I, I think so. And also, like, I, I was, I remember the um, the first game against Australia when Rabiot scored the equaliser with that drifting run and the header back across Matt Ryan. And it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think when you, when you have Griezmann not, making runs up to the defensive line. When you have him in, in a deep role, I suppose if you're defending against him, the temptation must be to deal with him, to push a man up out to him, to take away his time, to kind of, you know, hack at him a little bit, maybe, I don't know. So what you're doing there is you're, you're saying, right, well, um, you're kind of allowing Rabio, who is pretty decent in goal scoring positions. I think yeah. if you look at his club career, he's not, he's not volume goal scorer, um, but he does have quite a few important goals to his name. And I, I do feel like like Griezmann's position, I mean, it's a little bit um, tenuous, the point I'm making, I suppose, but um, it helps if you're attracting attention elsewhere in the pitch um, and you allow someone like Rabiot to make that kind of run if he's willing to go and do it. So I, I think there's um, there's all kinds of, sort of little butterfly effects to, to doing it, um, none of which would matter if he wasn't playing really, really well, by the way. So um, well done to him for that. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think it was a narrative that maybe anyone expected going into this no, tournament, but here not. we are. Here yeah. we are. And let's flip it uh, and let's talk about how England can hurt France because uh, so much has been made of this France attack, and, and rightly so. And you, you look at it, <laughs> and I think there's there's very few more fearsome, you know, sides on paper in the attacking third. Maybe Brazil, but even that, I would argue, is potentially a little bit more raw than than France's output, which just seems so consistent. Um, but England have. Uh, an embarrassment of riches at the top end as well in, in many ways. And I think this France team have shown that there are opportunities to get at them um, and definitely that they can, they, they are not by any means faultless in the final, in, in the defensive third, as I think they, it sounds a bit mad to say this after they conceded twice in the, in the final last time, but they felt pretty defensively secure uh, in the last tournament. That doesn't feel quite as much the case this time around. No, I agree. And I, I I was, I think before this tournament started, like you look back at France in 2018 and when it really mattered, final aside, like they got the one nils. Oh, they won a couple of those games on set pieces. First goal of the, sort of the final was a set piece. Um, they're not that side anymore. Also, I think that um, there are clear weaknesses. I think Jules Conde at fullback is an odd fit. Uh, I think Jules Conde is a really good player, but he's not a fullback. Um, he's a centre-half and that'll be his long-term future. Um, I don't think that Hernandez on the other side is the very best defender. I would say that um, uh, Uwe Mekano's had a really tough time in Germany um, at Bayern sorry, since his move because I think um, with the move to Bayern comes a level of scrutiny that he wasn't used to at Leipzig. And also he's still quite a young guy, so um, that's been pretty difficult. And he has recovered, 
But I think he's also, he's in that bracket center halves who's very gifted, but will make the occasional mistake. And Rafael Varane has come back from injury and didn't, um, he was by no means the problem at Manchester United. I think that's fair to say. He's kind of pretty low down that list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but this is not a impenetrable defense. And I'm a Tottenham fan, so I can say this. Hugo Lloris will make brilliant saves, but he'll make he'll make bad mistakes too. And his kicking from feet is poor, always has been. It's always been a weakness of his. Um, he has a tendency to stay on his line when he should come and um, collect crosses. He's not that decisive under the, um, under the high ball. And he will let soft goals in. And all of these things add up to an opportunity for England. I don't think England are anything other than an underdog, but um, it would be an awful shame if all of the emphasis and the performance is on sitting behind the ball rather than actually making sure that some of those wide forwards, um, I suppose if you're going to go with three centre-halves, you can only really play two forwards. One of them is going to be Harry Kane, so you're going to have to you kind of pick between three or maybe two if Raheem Sterling isn't isn't back from uh, from England. Um so it's difficult, but there's opportunity there. Like England have to get this balance right. They have to. I think one of the greatest successes in this tournament has been the freeing of Jude Bellingham. The Bellingham I see for Dortmund, Jack, is someone who sometimes, because of the weaknesses in that side, tries to do too much. Like he's he's the guy that he's playing six, eight, ten, whole lot. And the great triumph for Southgate so far, particularly in Senegal in the Senegal game, was no, he's he's a roaming eight and he can play yeah. as a ten. And if you give him the security behind. You don't have to worry about so much else because he can do so much damage. Um, and Rice and Henderson are a great combination for him because they provide perfect support and um, yeah, security. So um, it's balance. I feel like it's 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 almost you got to. <laughs> it's a bit of hypocrisy because we spent a good ten minutes worrying about Kylian Mbappe, but you got to make sure that these players don't feel too inferior because they shouldn't be. Like you put Kane yeah. up against that defense. He's going to get chances. You surround him with. I think Marcus Rashford should start. Yeah, just because I would agree. I, this is funny because I, 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 I'm not sure if I'm right. I'm not sure if we're right. But to me, it feels like if you play Rashford, if you're playing two forwards, you need someone who's a bit more of a nine rather than a kind of someone who doesn't really want to be um, going through the middle. Rashford, I feel like, is someone that can cause a problem wide, um, but also can probably dovetail with Kane better than the other two in a, just a, you know, a, a, a two-player partnership. I also think you just need to be able to release something over the top if you're going to have Harry Kane yeah. dropping in. And I think he will be dropping in to try and pick up the ball because especially if England are under the cosh, you need to be able to allow him to spring a trap, even if it's just to carry England up the field 30, 40 yards and win a throw-in or, or wherever that is, yeah. just to just to alter the game state a little bit in order to be like, okay, we're not completely under it all the time. I think Rashford is that player, although I do appreciate the idea that if Sterling isn't back then that doesn't leave you with very much pace off the bench to try and hurt tired legs. So um, I'd, I'd imagine that's a, that's a dilemma in, in some regards to, to deal with, but it is what it is. I think it's a nice dilemma though, because like I, the case for, Mar- um, for Marcus Rashford is, is fairly self-evident. I, I'm, I could also make an argument for Bakaya Saka playing just because um, he, like his ball carrying is pretty destructive. Um, he's a one-on-one problem for anybody at the moment. His confidence is really, really high. At the same time, I, I feel like he's more of a drift in field and um, he's somebody that needs, well, he's someone needs to find a passing lane for somebody else to be um, at his very, very best. Um, but it's just kind of like, this is the benefit of where England are. It's no longer quite right. Well, you know, Shearer, Sheringham, pick nine others, off we go. Like, 
it's the kind of the versatility that England have been trying to find for 20 or 30 years and now it's here um, the positive is that you kind of you can be versatile but um, the negative is that you're going to lose some very very good players on the bench I remember like Jane Sancho didn't even make England's World Cup team like after all like the, the conversation about James Madison you won't even play as much of a minute in this World Cup most likely um, these are these are these are very very good players but then this is kind of testament to, to kind of the facility within England's attack and um, I one of the things that kind of I like about Rashford is do you remember in um, Bruno Fernandes' first season at Manchester United when one or the other of Fernandes or Rashford would make that run kind of just past the halfway line to the left-hand side and the other would make the run over the top. That's the kind of dynamic that you want because Kane has that ball. Kane has that that receive the ball on the near touchline, switch it to a fullback or a wingback. He also has that one that he can drop over the top, which he used to do for Dele Alli when he was, when Dele Alli was still Dele Alli before whatever happened to him happened. And that's kind of, I think, what you need here. Um, and as long as it doesn't become a situation where Kane just becomes your, your out ball for 90 minutes, yeah. where you just bang goal kicks at him and hope for the best, that, that's not what I want to see because I, I feel like that's a bit too deferential. Um, it's a bit too sort of respectful of a France team. They're really, really good, but yeah, you can hurt them. Yeah, yeah, this is it. And it's going to be obviously the, the last game of these. I think the, the other thing is for, for England at the very least, we haven't seen England go behind Mm-hmm. at this tournament so far also the last time oh here's a quiz question this is fun uh the, the last time that england beat higher ranked opposition in a knockout tournament game in the world cup um it was a euros oh it was a euros um so then that would have to be didn't qualify for that one uh or that one uh, wouldn't it be Guinness? Would it be um, would it would it be Spain in Euro '96? Spain Kidding. in 1996, and before that it wow. was. And, before and they that, should have lost that game. Yeah, and before that was 1966. So England's record against higher ranked opposition and Southgate's isn't great, but this team have been <laughs> shifting history. Yeah, this team have been shifting history. You know, penalty shootouts won. Ooh, who knows? You know what what this England team are capable of. So I, I would agree with you that England remain underdog. But this is definitely a game that I'm, I'm looking forward to and should be should be a good encounter between two relatively well-matched sides. Um, the question is how it balances out in terms of uh, the way that it plays out. But on that bombshell, I think it's probably time for us to call it a day. Um, and all that's left for me to do is say thank you so much to Seb Stafford-Bloor for joining us. You're very welcome, Jay. Thanks for having me. Well, there we have it. All four quarterfinals previewed for you here on the Athletic Sox Show. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, we'd love it if you give us a rating and a review on whichever podcast platform you like or here on YouTube, giving us a like and a subscribe. I've been Jack Collins. Thank you so much to my four wonderful guests, to John McKenzie, to Jay Harris, to Peter Rutzler and to Seb Stafford-Bloor. And thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll see you very soon.